The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So tonight is November 22nd, and I'm going to begin a series of talks uh, for the rest of this year on the topic of right concentration. I'll be gone for two of the Wednesdays in December. Patrice will take over and also continue this topic. So if you haven't been coming, um, I've been talking the whole year on the Eightfold Path, and the last section in the order that I've uh, gone through it is concentration. And concentration is both the specific um, activity of quieting the mind but it's in this larger category in the Eightfold Path, which is also called concentration or samadhi. It's really about an investigation or reflection, an ongoing reflection. What kind of mind or what kind of heart is most conducive to seeing things as they actually are? And I know, you know, we hear about, most of us have read some stuff about meditation and we hear things about these sort of unusual states you know, people seeing lights or people having uh, various kinds of mystical or concentration experiences. But I think it's most useful to think about samadhi or concentration in a really practical way. Like not even in terms of our meditation practice, but as we move about our life, what kind of mind, what kind of heart is most conducive to not being confused in life, most conducive to sort of cutting through our emotional baggage and actually seeing clearly how it is, what's going on. So it doesn't mean that we're free of our emotional baggage, but it just means we're recognizing our emotional baggage as emotional baggage or emotional habit. And, and that's also true with what's going on around us. So it doesn't mean we're indifferent to our partners or our friends or our colleagues at work. It just means we're sort of having some clarity at what's coming at us. And we're not being, we're not confused, we're not falling into some habit of reactivity. And we say, oh, this person's upset. This person's needy. This person's not paying attention. This person's angry. This person's upset. You know, this person's needy. So whether we're seeing it externally or internally, <clears throat> basically, Samadhi, or this uh, purification of the mind, by defini definition is a mind that's not confused by conditions, external or internal conditions. So that's sort of a nice reflection, just to think about, like, just in terms of our memory of experiences that we've had in our lives, times when we remember a mind that wasn't so confused by things that came in you know, that arose in our life. Like walking into the Mall of America, but not confused by what we see in the shop windows or the people we see, the attractive or the unattractive people we see, or the smells we smell. Or driving and seeing roadkill, you know, a dead squirrel on the road, and not being confused. So not being numb to it, but also not being confused by the image of a dead squirrel on the road or watching the news and just receiving the information 
without the mind being agitated or confused by what's being seen or heard. So in this sense, samadhi, or a a quiet, clear, non-reactive mind, by definition, is the most useful kind of mind. It's useful in all ways. It's useful in the very practical way of making choices in life that are skillful because we won't be caught up in just a reactive pattern. So we'll see them because of the clarity. We'll see the reactive patterns as reactive patterns, less likely than to act them out blindly. But not only that, but it's also... So on the one hand, in the practical hand, it's really conducive to making skillful choices. And then in the deeper sense, samadhi or this really wholesome, balanced, quiet mind is conducive to insight, which means insight just means a, a, a transformation of our understanding. So we have an understanding that's based on mostly misperception, And so when we have insight, our understanding is transformed because the mind, the heart, is seeing things as they are to some degree, then that clear seeing changes, transforms our understanding, which had been based on not seeing things so clearly, misperceiving things. For example, and I always give this example because it's just, you know, obvious one, like if you're sitting in front of a group of people giving a talk, like I am now, and if you notice certain people in the room apparently are bored by their body language, then I could misperceive the experience of people yawning. I could take it personally, and whether or not my talk is actually somehow off or wrong, I could start perceiving the situation as I'm really bad as a public speaker or as a Dharma teacher. Or I could misperceive the situation as you're really bad. This is a great talk, this is important stuff, and you're just falling asleep. So either one of those could be a form of misperception. But if there's a real balance in the mind, a quietness, a non-reactivity in the mind, then then right view or right perception would be just to see what it is without going any further. So all that's being known is, you know, the visual experience of the person yawning. And that's all that's being known. And of course, that could mean many things. We don't know what that means. All we know is that somebody is yawning or is opening their mouth as if they were yawning. That's all we know. And it's it's really nice to keep things just on that level, not to turn it into a personal story like they're off, that they don't get what I'm saying, or I must be off, that I can't sort of engage people. So this is actually a pretty potent insight that arises when the mind is balanced to have a more uh, neutral, non-personal way of understanding the moment's experience. So wrong view is we're translating this moment's experience into some sort of 
the sort of feeding a personal story or personal commentary that's just sort of ongoing in the mind. And we'll continue to, to do that forever until we cultivate the heart-mind that can be present in a moment. So present means that, that there's a certain stability, non-reactivity. I love the image that Joseph Goldstein once used. Many of you have heard me say this. We compared the mind to an upside-down bowl. And so every moment of experience is like a pearl being placed at the top of the upside-down bowl. And immediately, of course, it, it rolls away down one of the sides. And no matter how persistent we are, we place it there. It just keeps rolling down. But at some point, with practice, with training, the mind, the bowl and mind it turns over to now it's right side up. So even though that pearl might roll about, it has a tendency to come back to the center to these things as they are. This insight that it's just what it is right now. And uh, somebody might do something like, you know, going back to that earlier example, get up and walk out and shut the door really hard. And that might be a little shock for the pearl, right? The mind might sort of dance around a bit, but its tendency will be come back to neutral. Like, that's just somebody standing up, that's just somebody walking out, that's just the sound of the door slamming, there's just this fear that I've made a mistake, that I've upset somebody. Everything is seen as just as it is, just a natural phenomena being known, a mental, physical phenomena being known. And this is the great um, gift of samadhi, of a, a balanced, quiet mind, is it actually can be in the midst of the world without being uh, knocked around by the world. So it doesn't, you know, normally we think in order to protect ourselves, we have to remove ourselves from the difficult things in life. You know that feeling, right? Like you've had a busy day or just a crazy day. Then there's a tendency to want to protect yourself by closing the door, maybe going into the bathroom and having a nice hot bath, not even turning things on, but somehow retreating but this is the kind of heart and mind that doesn't need to retreat from the world. That's the whole point of samadhi practice. Now, to develop samadhi practice, we might retreat. You know, you might come to common ground or you might go to some corner of your apartment or house where there aren't too many distractions. And we're actually developing um, a path to stillness, a path to quietness, a path to non-reactivity. But what we discover, the more we practice, is that that quality of samadhi isn't actually dependent on the conditions. Initially, it's absolutely dependent on the conditions. It's dependent on the fact that we're sitting in a posture that we've gotten used to and that we're using a particular technique like following the breath that the mind has gotten used to. And maybe you're noting the in and out or the rising and falling of each breath and noting the distractions or doing some sort of sweeping technique, moving the attention through the sensations of the body. But what we what is found the more we practice is this quality of stillness 
begins to pervade even really crazy times in our life where we're doing too many things or there's all kinds of emotional storms going on. See, we think, we think that samadhi or concentration is somehow about the particular conditions in the moment, like the mind doesn't have much to pay attention to, so it quiets down. But if, you know, a lot starts to happen, like we start to think about all our problems, or our kids come into the room, or our cat or dog comes into the room, you know, then, you know, that sort of rattles the mind. So I wanted to begin this uh, discussion of samadhi um, by just reminding our, ourselves of all the pieces that supports this understanding of the mind that is unafflicted, undisturbed, undistracted by uh, all the conditions, what comes and goes. I really like the definition that Ajahn Sumedho gives for one aspect of concentration, this one-pointedness. Kagata is the Pali word. And he describes or defines one-pointedness not like, see, from a superficial definition of concentration, we think one-pointedness means I bring my attention to the sensations of the breath and I fix it there. And in doing so, I protect my mind from all the bad things it might do, right? all the things it might think about or worry about or plan about or attend to. And so samadhi or concentration is taking the attention, connecting and sustaining it on a particular object. But what Ajahn Sumedho says is that's true. We take the attention, we place it on a particular object. It's one-pointed, but that particular object is now. It's not the breath, it's not sound, it's not a mantra. The particular object the one, that we're one-pointed with, that the mind is one-pointed with, is now. And he goes on, he says, it's the one point that includes all points. Right? So when we're awake to now, what's excluded? So it's, it does exclude one thing. One-pointedness in the now excludes delusion or confusion or getting caught up in our thoughts or concepts. That's the one thing that's excluded with samadhi or one-pointedness. So, in a you know, in a Buddhist in the Buddhist model, concentration, of course, means wholesome concentration. It's not the concentration when we're obsessing, you know completely focused on how we're going to get what we want or you know the thief planning out the crime that's not the samadhi or concentration we're talking about it's a, a one-pointedness a coming together of the mind in the present moment free of delusion free of confusion so it, it, it means that the attentiveness is not distorted by concept. That's the direction we move. So, no, of course, when we begin to just come into the experience of the body and we feel the sensations of the body, of course, initially, for a long time, 
our awareness of the body is distorted by our thoughts about the body, right? And I'm sure you notice that tonight as, you know, in the beginning part of the practice as you're just feeling the body sitting here, it's confusing because there's sort of an experience and attentiveness to the sensations, but there also are thoughts, our interpretations of what it means to have a body now here. My body's really stiff tonight. That thought is not being attentive to the sensations of the body. That's a thought. Now, if we notice that's just a thought, well, then that's, that can be a kagata, that one-pointedness in the now. But if we're not aware that that's just a thought, then we're deluded by that thought. Does that make sense? So any thought that's not seen as a thought means we're being deluded by that thought, that it's a distraction. It confuses the mind. Any thought that arises and is known as just a thought in the mind is just another object that's being known in the now, something that's being known. So I say that because what we'll all be talking about, and probably Patrice to some degree, is we'll be talking about the value of a particular sort of training that we all do. But I don't want us to get confused by the training. It's really important to know where we're going. And we're going in a direction where we're free of training, you know, of meeting training wells, like the breath. So we might develop a wholesome attachment to the breath or the wholesome attach, attachment to sensations in the body. But ultimately, in terms of keeping the mind quiet, clear, free of distraction, we can be quiet, the mind can be quiet, clear, free of distraction, regardless of what's being known in the moment, whether it's thought or emotion or sensation or visual experience. Even really intricate thinking can be uh, uh, not the cause for confusion, for agitation in the mind. And of course, even the most simple objects like watching the sensations of the body, observing the sensations of the breath, can be, the, can be an object full of attachment, full of delusion. Like we could be attending to the breath with this idea that if I attend to the breath, I'll be enlightened. Well, that's a really deluded thought. And it, that confusion, that misperceiving of practice and of what's going on is conducive to suffering. So it, uh, we do, you know, and as a training, we do emphasize sort of simplifying things and using particular techniques. But we have to be on the lookout for attachment and for delusion. Delusion just means having a lot of ideas about the technique or about what we're doing. So we want to have a practice, a technique, but we don't want to have a lot of ideas or expectations because it actually undermines it. So we just sort of do it. And the only way we evaluate it is not during the technique, but afterwards you just notice the effect of the technique. And just notice the sort of 
um, quality of the mind, having done, having engaged this technique for 30 minutes or 45 minutes, then afterward, you know, as you start to move about your day, having spent 45 minutes committed to the technique of gently, persistently bringing the attention to the experience of the breath, connecting, sustaining attention with the breath, noticing when the mind wanders, not reacting, not judging, and returning, connecting, sustaining with the breath, noticing when the mind wanders, noticing that, returning, connecting, sustaining. So we do that for 45 minutes, free of expectations, free of analysis, free of comparing this sit versus another sit. We just do it. We just keep doing it. And then afterward, if you want, you can just notice how the mind is. Whether as you move about your day, there's less reactivity. Whether you notice as you go about your day, there's a sense of spaciousness and stillness in the midst of running to catch your bus or driving in traffic. Like there's activity, the activity of your life, the activity of your mind, the activity of your body. And there's also a sense of spaciousness or stillness. And they both coincide. They're not somehow in opposition to one another. And then that's the aftertaste of good samadhi practice, good concentration practice, or good meditation practice. So in a way, our meditation practice, quieting the mind, is really um, sort of setting in motion a mind that's practically uh, really useful for a busy human being, you know, for a mother or a father or for a somebody who's got a lot to do. Why else would we do the practice, right? If it isn't conducive to living a good life, a wholesome life. <clears throat> so in terms of the Eightfold Path, we have uh, you know eight sections of the Eightfold Path, and it's divided into three sections. And earlier in the year, I talked about wisdom or right view as the first section. And then there's a section on living in harmony or ethical conduct. And then this third section, as I mentioned earlier tonight, is called samadhi. So samadhi as a general section includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And so if you've been coming for the last month or two, I've been talking about right mindfulness, which is part of samadhi. So right effort means making the effort to free the mind of distracting influences like worry, like doubt, like dullness, like restlessness, like wanting, like irritation or fear or aversion. So uh, that's right effort basically, abandoning what's agitating and developing, maintaining mind states that are conducive to the bowl being the right side up, conducive to the mind settling down, being tranquil and bright. Right? There's always those two qualities to remember, uh, the sort of ease in the mind and the brightness in the mind. And we want both of those highly developed, a lot of ease and trust and acceptance and forgiveness and a lot of brightness and interest 
sensitivity. We want both of those qualities. So uh, first, we make right effort to abandon what's agitating, what leads to distraction, and to develop and maintain what, what leads to this nice balance. That's right effort. Then right mindfulness is really uh, a process of moving from gross objects that we attend to to the most subtle objects that we attend to. Right? So we start with things like the body and the breath and the sound of traffic. Right? Those are, re- those are kindergarten objects for meditation. We're all in kindergarten, by the way, most of the time at least. So that's where we train mostly with the easy objects to be mindful of. So once there is, once we've abandoned the hindrances and the mind is somewhat nimble, somewhat willing to be in the present moment, then we train in connecting and sustaining with the body. That's the most obvious kindergarten anchor for the attention, is the body, the various qualities of the body or the five physical senses. But that's just the beginning. Once we get good at paying attention to the body, then we move to the mind, you know, the gross aspects of the mind first, and then the most subtle aspects of the mind. So the whole spectrum goes from the body, in terms of this middle part of samadhi practice, which is mindfulness now, talking about mindfulness as a technical training, from gross objects to really subtle objects. Well, what's the most subtle object to pay attention to? It's also the most important object. So the most subtle object is how the mind goes from freedom to dukkha, and from dukkha to freedom. How the mind or how the heart becomes burdened, how the heart becomes unburdened. That's the most subtle mindfulness object and the most important. So the whole training in samadhi is to develop the mind that first knows the body as body, but eventually knows the mind, that's the middle section, and eventually knows how the mind or heart gets burdened, how the mind and heart becomes unburdened. And then these two, the effort and the mindfulness, really uh, kind of go hand in hand. They're not really different trainings with the development of samadhi. So samadhi is the unification of the mind. So we make right effort and we unify the mind on the body and then we unify the mind on awareness of the mind and eventually we are specifically unifying the mind, collecting the attention, collecting all the energy of the mind so it's completely focused, non-distracted, here in the present moment, but specifically in the present moment, knowing how dukkha, how suffering arises and passes, ceases. So we're in the world, whether we're sitting in meditation or dealing with our family, but what the mind is really absorbed on, absorbed into, fully aware of, is the experience of dukkha and the ending of dukkha. Now that's a life conducive to insight. I mean, if we really went through our day with the mind unified on the experience of being weighed down by the moment or liberated, freed, not weighed down in the moment, we would learn so much. 
because what we one of the things we'd learn is how how we relate determines whether the heart is burdened or not burdened in any moment we may think we're burdened because we're in traffic or because we didn't get the promotion or because of what we're seeing in the news but we're really burdened by how we relate or react to the conditions and that's really important to see that's that's the insight that arises with this samadhi so often we talk about samadhi somehow separate than insight but actually in a buddhist sense right samadhi inevitably leads to insight when the mind is in this balanced place this quiet place naturally according to the teachings of the buddha we're developing that samadhi on the experience of suffering and the end of suffering that's what we want to develop our sensitivity about the experience of suffering and the ending of suffering not as a concept not as a philosophical concept but as a direct experience in the moment how does this heart become burdened i mean you know if we went around the room and and if i asked everybody and we went around the room you know do you know the experience of suffering everybody here would say yeah or if i asked is there anybody in the room who's completely free of suffering completely fully content with things as they are well most people would say no but that doesn't mean that we're directly in the moment knowing the experience of being burdened or the how how is it that we know we're not fully content are we we're so busy trying to get to contentment we're not awake sensitive to the experience of being discontent unsatisfied with the experience in the moment we're not aware of the seeking a different experience even in the most subtle of ways like you may be in the room now seeking to understand what the heck mark is saying and just that is a is a form of dukkha because we're re- we're rejecting our experience like i don't understand it so this is not okay i need to become somebody who understands what he's saying that's dukkha that subtle tension is dukkha it's the absence of contentment and ease and freedom and so if we're practicing then we may be here hearing the talk but what's front and center in our experience what we're observing in this moment's experience is this tension this disease this unsatisfactoriness and then also the moments when it falls away and the and and the moment opens to the experience of ease and freedom and contentment with things as they are and then maybe we get attached to that right and then the ease falls away and then we notice the dukkha of liking that ease wanting it back and then back and forth like this all day long in our sitting practice in our meditation practice observing being fully present fully unified in the experience of dukkha and the absence of dukkha suffering and the absence of suffering or freedom and the absence of freedom 
And then we get inspired because then it's our, our whole life is really the training ground. Now to support that practice and what we'll be talking about the next several weeks is, well, what can we formally do in meditation practice to make it more likely that we'll be living our life this way instead of sort of caught up in life, caught up in our distractions and our worries and our hopes and dreams. Actually, instead, we'll be using our life to have this insight, like how it is dukkha, suffering arises, stress, tension arises, how it is that it passes away. So instead of doing that, we do something else. But what can we do formally to support that ongoing insight? And so it's really this training of moving the ball from being upside down to right side up. A mind where, yes, we might come touch the present moment, but we just slide right off into distraction for five minutes or ten minutes or a couple seconds. And then we have enough wherewithal to say, oh, okay, distracted, oh, yeah. We come back and then we're gone again. And we come back and then we're gone again. So basically the training is a willingness to start over. That's the most important thing this persistence. And we call that connecting. Connecting is applying our effort. It's a willful effort here. Uh, We're willfully noticing that we're distracted and coming back somewhere that's present. You know, some present moment experience like the body sitting or the breath moving in the body or the song being heard. So we're, in a sense, picking our attention up, away from whatever self-centered thinking, whatever story it's lost in. So we're picking up this aspect of the mind that we call attention, and we're gently, persistently placing it in something that's relatively easy to connect with, like the sensations of the breath. And we land. Even if we roll off, that's okay. As soon as we have the wherewithal that we're lost, we pick it up and we place it down. That's the first part. And it's energizing to do that. It's what we discover a basic principle with the mind that making the mind work like this is energizing. So if you think your mind is dull or if it seems like your mind is dull or sleepy, practice, make the effort to come back. Even if it feels like you're slogging through a marsh, like it's just like so hard just to even get a sense that you're lost, right? With whatever clarity you have, you see, I'm lost. And then with whatever clarity you have, you find the experience of the body, however mushy, however like looking through the fog to find the sensations. Sometimes in retreat, when there's a lot of dullness and it's especially strong, it's literally like looking through a fog. You would think it would be easy to feel the buttocks hitting the cushion. But it can be so difficult sometimes just to notice that let alone something more subtle like the breath in the body. Just to feel some sensation in the body can be quite difficult at times when the mind is really dull. But making the effort energizes the mind. It brightens the mind. So for the next week or so, I'll talk about connecting. And specifically, connecting means we're cutting through the concept. So the key here is we don't look for the body as a concept. So in the present moment, we know we're lost and we know we're supposed to come back to the body. But the tendency will be sort of to look through the present moment for the thought of the body. Like we have a concept or an image of the body. But we want to actually 
drop into the present moment sensory experience of the body, the sensations of the body itself, as they are, moment to moment. And that's the, that's the difficult part, because even when we know we're supposed to return to the body, it can be very difficult to find the route that actually leads to the sensations of the body. So we're really training, uh, we're using a particular place. That's why, as a technique, we often encourage people to use a particular place to come back to and then just keep coming back to that place. So the mind actually creates a gateway to the sensations of the body, which in a way is a gateway to now. Because as soon as my attention is here, the air touching the skin here, to the degree the mind is aware of that touching sensation, there is present moment awareness in the now. So I'm with the ultimate meditation object now, or non-distraction, non-confusion by concepts. So to the degree I can sustain my attention there, that's a second aspect of samadhi, sustaining attention then doubt disappears. Doubt can only arise when we're under the influence of thoughts, the content of the thoughts. When we're being confused by the content of thought, that's when doubt arises. So to any moment where there's some sustaining attention with the present moment experience, then non-doubt arises. Doubt is eliminated from the mind in those moments. And that's a real liberation. A mind free of doubt is nice. It's experienced as freedom. There is freedom when there's no doubt in the mind, no confusion. And this can happen. All this takes is for the attention to land with the breath or the sensations of the body or with the sound and to sustain that attention, that purity of attention for a few seconds. And what will arise is the experience of energy and non-doubt, freedom from doubt. There will be a, some degree of brightness, energy in the mind, and then the, the feeling of non-confusion will arise. So this is our homework for this week. To really emphasize these first two qualities of concentration, connecting and sustaining attention in the present moment and to really appreciate the value of physical sensations as our kindergarten practice that we all need. And to give yourself a break by finding a particular place to come back to so you don't have to think what place should I come back to, which will immediately take you into more thinking. And you'll be lost until you realize that you're lost. And then you think about where you should come back to. And you get lost again. And you'll never come back. So traditionally, you know, the breath experienced here in the body. Now here, it's not actually the breath. What is it? It's the experience of movement. That's really what we're paying attention to. The belly or the wall of the abdomen, it moves out. And it moves in. It expands and it contracts. So if you're noting the experience here, you might note rising, falling, or expanding contracting, if you want to use noting to support that connecting and sustaining. 
So uh, here the breath is experienced as the movement of the abdomen. Here the breath is experienced as touching. The air touches the skin, either at the rim of the nostrils or just outside of the nostrils as it comes in. And the air touches the nostrils as it goes out. That's the experience of touching. So we're feeling that contact. Here we're feeling movement. So when we return from having thought, been thinking, or worrying, or just lost somewhere, we notice we're lost. We remember I'm here meditating. So then that kicks in this very gentle but persistent, you know, effort to land, to bring the attention to the experience of movement, or to bring the experience, uh, the attention to the experience of touching. And if you're using the noting technique, if that helps you, then note in. Or you can note touching if you want as the air comes in and touching or out as the air goes out. In and out don't make so much sense if you're noting the experience in the belly. It can be confusing because you'll be noting in as the belly goes out and that might just confuse you. So you might use the note rising or expanding and falling or contracting. Okay? Now some of you might feel it in your chest and then you can just note the movement here in the chest or if it's the movement or the experience of the breath is felt viscerally in another way for you and that's predominant, then just note that. But most people generally are watching the belly, the nostrils, smaller number here in the chest. So that's just a common anchor used in Buddhist meditation practice. There are many other anchors and if you have trouble with the breath, you can just bring it up in class tonight or call me or talk to me at some point, and there I can give you other possibilities for a basic anchor for your tension. And remember, the basic homework then is just to learn how to connect, to touch, or to open to the experience relatively free of concepts. Now, that doesn't mean your thoughts about what you're doing are going to disappear, but you can practice not being confused by the thinking. Don't get angry at the thinking. Don't feel like you have to push it away. Get interested in the physical sensations of the breath. Keep turning toward that and don't worry so much about the thinking. Just let it fall into the background of the mind. It will naturally quiet down the more you train the mind to attend, to sustain with the physical experience of the breath. And it's quite traumatic. Even a few seconds of really being intimate with the sensations of the breath, you'll notice a difference in the mind. It really changes the quality of the mind very quickly. And generally, that change is a distraction. You'll get confused by that change, and then that will throw you off. So just notice that and start again. And the more you see what happens as the mind does sustain for a while, then just let that be what it is. So uh, whenever the mind is sustaining with any experience, the concentration deepens and the experience of the concentration deepens becomes predominant. So just let that be noticed. You know, the quieting of the mind is, is itself an experience and quite predominant experience. The calmness, the tranquility, the energy of a quieting mind. Because what happens, it's like a laser. The mind is usually distracted. And even after a few seconds, when the, the energy of the mind is collected around the experience of the breath in the present moment, uh, then 
the mind is also noticing the experience of the mind being collected, just the power, the brightness of the mind being collected. And so don't be confused by that experience. Just notice it as the now. That's what's happening here in the now. And just let it be what it is. So the, the basic instruction is to completely trust what happens when you connect and sustain attention in the present moment, like with the breath. Trust that it's, this is how it is, which means you've got to completely let go of your expectations of what it should be and just let the whole thing unfold naturally without any expectations. That's the best way, to do the instructions and to let go of any expectations. And if you have, if you get confused repeatedly in a predictable way, then ask some questions, either in the group or see somebody you trust who seems to have more experience than you and talk to them about it. So I'll leave it here so we have a little time to begin our discussion now. If you have any questions about this basic training in samadhi or concentration, quieting the mind that you'd like to ask, or maybe some of you would like to share your own experience. Many of you have been practicing for many, many years, and you can just share with the group what you've come to learn in your own practice of quieting the mind. So what comes to mind? Maybe I, I'm not. Sure. I'm not convinced um, because you know one of the things that happens. You come here and uh, you've been practicing for a while now, and your mind does come into some balance, which means there is more clarity. And so, if there's a mind that sees things as they actually are, what is that kind of mind or heart likely to notice about the conditions of the body and mind in your situation? Maybe it's likely to notice that it's exhausted. So, you know, if we practice correctly so that the mind and heart is actually more receptive, more sensitive to how it is, and what we notice is exhaustion, 
Well, maybe we're simply waking up to the truth, which is, yes, we may be buzzing through life, but that buzz is on the surface, and what's underneath the surface is a real exhaustion. And that may be exactly what we need to receive, because maybe what we need to do is not more, but maybe we need to rest. And maybe that's the lesson. So that's what I meant about maybe you're not deluded. Maybe what your experience is is exactly what a clear mind would experience in your situation, conditions as they are for you. Maybe things, maybe the mind and body is exhausted and is saying, rest me, put me to bed, keep me away from distractions for a while. You know, maybe that's what the body mind is saying. Fernando. I missed your first party. I noticed in your talk today you didn't use the categories of objective and subjective. And this, um, in the this idea of or this quest of wanting to see things or observe things unhindered by baggage as as we concentrate on smarts. So I'd like for you to address that a little bit mm-hmm. I think that wouldn't be a bad way of distinguishing, you know, delusion, non-delusion, subjective, objective, um, you know, seeing things with wrong views, seeing things as they are. I think they're, you know, language is always problematic, but I think subjective and objective is as good of a, you know, in terms of language, as good of a way of describing the movement from our, our habit, which is to see things subjectively to the training, which is to learn to see things objectively. But it's not, it's just their language and there's a problem with those words because, um, you know, the, the word objectively also has some connotations of, of somehow being apart from the experience. And the actual experience of meditation or not just med- formal meditation, but the, the experience of samadhi is the mind and the object coming together. So it's more like subjective, the subjective, the sense of being outside of the experience disappears. So if that's what we mean by objective, then fine. It's just fine to use the word objective. But sometimes we think of objective like subjective means I'm a witness with an agenda. And objective means I'm a witness without an agenda. And that's not, you know, there's some usefulness in sort of seeing practice as being the witness without an agenda. But ultimately, that's too simplistic. And that whole idea of a witness can disappear. Like the witness, we don't need the witness. There can be the knowing without a sense of a witness witnessing or observing what's being known. That's that's a sense of separation that can be let go of. Or we can know that sense of being the observer and take that as an object. Right? So the idea is to, to move from dualism to non-dualism. But I think those words can be useful. Subjective, objective can be useful. And kind of just getting to know the territory. Mm-hmm. Jim? My question has to do with 
confusion. I talked a lot about confusion, and that happens to me all the time in my engagement. So I think of when I'm sitting and stopping and trying to be in the present moment, and thoughts come flooding in, sometimes aversions and sometimes desires, but my imagination is going in. Sitting lets me be still, but I'm not trying to do anything. But most of the time I'm out there trying to do something, especially in my work as an ethnographer when I'm in the community trying to understand what's going on. I go into a place not knowing what's going on, and I get confused. Mm-hmm. But if I go in thinking of when I'm sitting and not having the jumping to conclusions but just being receptive, I'm still confused. But by working through it, I become less confused. But this word kept coming up, and what kind of confusion are you referring to? Because for me, it's a natural part of what happens every day. Mm -hmm. That's a really good question. And you remember earlier in the talk, I talked about the activity of the moment and then the the space around that activity or that uh, sort of infuses that activity. So space and stillness I'm using synonymously here. And I'm also putting that in the category of non-confusion. And so our lives, I think, as you're pointing to, are inherently confusing. I mean, being a human being uh, with intimate relations and uh, hopes and dreams and um, just, you know, being engaged in life is inherently confusing. But that doesn't mean we have to be confused by what's inherently confusing. It's like the confusion is only confusing if we think it should be other than it is. Does that make sense? So it's like, you know, common ground is just trying to figure out whether we should buy the diner down the street or the Good Templar Center, you know, on Cedar Avenue. And there's, you know, they're very different. There's sort of different realities. If we move into the Good Templar Center, we kind of take off down one road and this community becomes a certain thing. And if we move into the diner, then we become another thing. And it's not even a question of right or wrong. It's just like two different realities. Now, how do you decide that? I mean, it's really, it's confusing. But but we, it's possible to be Mark or to be anybody in this community and aware of those two possibilities and not confused by what's confusing, not confused by not knowing what's right or wrong. Like we don't actually need to know what's the right choice to choose. So you can move through your life making choices without having the arrogance or the sort of idea that you need to know the right way to do it. In, in fact, I find it much better not to know. And I remember when Wynn and I were getting married, you know, um, to just be really open about not knowing. You know, we, don't, we, ha- we can have the aspiration to have a really good life together, but we don't know what's going to happen, or at least I don't know what's going to happen in the relationship. But it doesn't get in the way of having the aspiration that we have a really good life together. Instead of saying, you know, uh, this is marriage and it's from now until we die. Because that's a kind of arrogance or delusion, because we don't know that. But we can say it's our aspiration to have a good life together. And it may be a good life for 10 years, it may be a good life for six months, 
It may be a good life for 40 years. So are you saying that the confusion that's a problem is the need to have certainty, the need that you have to find a way to get the right answer, and that will inherently confuse you? Yeah, so finding the mind that doesn't have a problem with the, the ordinary, inevitable confusion in your life. So it's in, like in that moment where you're awake to the normal confusion, the unavoidable confusion in the situation, then in that moment, just notice if there's a quality in the mind and heart that's okay, that has the space, the equanimity, you know, to be okay with that confusion, you know, and just see what happens. You know, it's just, it's so interesting to see how we can actually move through confusion. And, you know, of course, it's always confusing. At the times we think it's not confusing, it's just because we're pretending. <laughs> it's actually always confusing. I mean, we never really know what's going to happen or what we should do, you know, whether we should order French fries or the coleslaw, <laughs> what's going to settle best or be best for our health. Mm-hmm. good place to end actually tonight because that that uh, having a problem with the inherent confusion in life really keeps us from samadhi practice one of the biggest problems in meditation practice is we think we have to resolve problems before we quiet our mind so instead think about for the time being I'm going to put aside all my problems and I'm going to quiet my mind I don't need to resolve the problems because it's true. We all have issues to resolve. Nobody is free of issues in their life. But if you want to develop this practice, for the period of time that you're meditating, you have to put aside all problems. Even when it seems like your mind is in the perfect place to solve this problem, which will happen because as your mind gets quieter, your mind is in a better place to deal with your relationship problems and your work problems and your this and that problems. But you put it aside during the samadhi training. The, the meditation training, and you just work on quieting your mind. And it would, you can then use your quiet mind to address those problems later. But for the period of training, really be okay with things being unresolved, because it's oh, there's always unresolved things, and we'll avoid our practice forever if we think we have to resolve things first. So we need to leave it here. We're a few minutes after already. Let's just take a few seconds. Let go of the words.